When I walked in this morning, I told the ushers that uh, I've known Mike for a long time, almost 13 years I've known Mike. So there's a lot of grace on my life, obviously. And uh, I always tell people, I didn't know Mike before he was a Christian, but I thought I did. And so <laughs> I love Mike, and, and uh, we, we, I have a, we have a friendship that goes back many years, and we have a deep appreciation for each other, and, and Carrie and Cohen, and it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, years ago, I got to go on a mission trip to Northern Ireland with some students from this church, and so I have some connection with Living Word. I was actually born in Rochester. I have family that lives in Rochester, and so it's always good to be back this way. Now, my family couldn't travel with me this morning because they're not so good at getting up at six in the morning, but I wanted to bring a picture of them with me so you can meet them. Uh, I've been married for seven years. This is my wife, Erin, and we have two little girls. Uh, Lilia is five, and Caroline will be three in February, and we are actually expecting our third uh, in May. So it's a, it's a very full life and a very exciting time. Uh, when I arrived, my wife sent me a text and said that Lilia prayed for you this morning at breakfast, and she prayed that Daddy would have a safe trip to the church where he was going, and that if he was already there, that he would preach good. So no matter how this goes, we're going to tell her that I preached good. Um, we're going to look at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. The words will be up on the screen for you, or you can turn there in your Bible or on the electronic device of your choosing. Um, 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to begin in the second half of verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 11. And Peter writes these words, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. As Pastor Mike pointed out earlier, we're in December now. And for my girls, December means one thing, presence. Uh, this is a time of the year that we sing about peace and joy, and it's supposed to be a, a, a time filled with those things. But how many of you have learned that December can be a time filled with a lot of different worries, <laughs> a lot of things that we're worried about? We're, we're, some of you maybe are worried about uh, finding and purchasing the, pers- the perfect gift for somebody. Anybody, you know someone in your life and they're difficult to shop for. You never know what to get for them, and so we worry about that. Little children are worried about how naughty or nice they've been Uh, for this past year. Some of you are worried about, will the packages that you ordered online, will they arrive on time? Will the lights that you set up, will they actually stay on uh, all the way through Christmas? And then, of course, uh, because we're purchasing so many things, people are worried about the money and, and credit cards and all that sort of stuff. So in a season that's supposed to be about peace, we end up worrying. So this morning, I want to talk to you about worry. And, uh, when we think about worry, sometimes we think, well, is it really a big deal? You know, because sometimes we feel like worry is actually an expression of our concern and our care. And so I worry because I care and I worry because I'm concerned and I worry because I'm invested and I want things to go well. And so I worry. Is worry really a big deal? Well, in this book of 1 Peter, Peter introduces the topic of worry. Did you see that where he talked about our cares? 
And he introduces it into a letter that he's been writing. It's primarily about suffering. The early church has been suffering. They are suffering and they're going to suffer. And so uh, Peter writes to them about worry. And in the context of suffering, talking about worry seems to make sense. But what we should notice this morning and what should give us pause is that in the verses that we read, Peter introduces the topic of worry around a passage that has a lot to say about two other things also, pride and the devil. Worry grouped with pride and the devil? Well, maybe worry is a bigger deal than we think. What we're going to see this morning is that worry has the power to ruin us, but worship has the power to restore us. Worry has the power to ruin us, but worship has the power to restore us. And from this short passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the face of worry, the heart of worry, and the death of worry. The face, the heart, and the death. So let's talk first about the face of worry. What does worry look like? It says in this passage in verse 7, it says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What does worry look like? I mean, you know what it looks like, right? You, you've seen it on people's faces. If you walk into a room, you can tell who's worrying. How many of you uh, did some shopping on Friday? Any Black Friday shoppers? Anybody out there risking it? Now, if you got in line on Friday morning early and you saw the line, you probably saw some worry on some people's faces because, you know, they're thinking, am I going to get in there and, and get that they're selling these TVs and they only got 25 TVs and I'm the 26th person in line and they're doing the math and trying to figure out how can I budge and how can I get past them? And you can just see worry, right? When it's on somebody, it just, it's on their face. It's all over them. And worry has a face about it. It sort of um, can control us. It can cause us to act differently. It can cause us to think differently. Worry has that power over us. But there's actually a clue in this passage as to what worry is. There's two clues. The first one is that Peter uses the word cast. Worry is a burden. The only other time in the New Testament that that Greek word for cast is used is in the Gospels when it talks about the disciples casting their cloaks onto the back of a burden bearer type animal. And so when Peter uses the word cast your cares, cast your anxiety, he's drawing up the imagery of it's a burden. It weighs you down. It slows you down. So worry does that. But there's something else in this passage about worry. He goes on to say, be self-controlled and alert. Now, what does that mean? In the, in the original Greek, what it means is be sober. He's talking about be sober uh, and keep watch. And here's what people believe Peter is saying. Peter is saying anxiety has the power to control you and to distract you, to disorient you. In other words, Peter is saying anxiety will intoxicate your soul. So be sober. How many of you can relate to when you're really worried about something, how it just grips you. It intoxicates your soul. You can't think about anything else. Sometimes when I come home from work and I'm worried about something that happened at work, I'll come in the door and my girls always scream, Daddy's here, usually because they think I brought them something. But even if I didn't bring them something, they're still happy that I'm there. And I come upstairs and they want to play dolls. When you got little girls, you play dolls a lot more than is appropriate for a man. But uh, we, we play a lot of dolls. And uh, uh, they want to play. And so here I am, I'm playing, and, and then we'll play little games on, their, on the iPad or whatever. And even though I'm there, I'm not there. Do you know what I mean? 
physically you're there, but mentally you're back in the office. You're still worried about the budget. You're still worried about the issues. And so worry has that power to intoxicate our souls in such a way that we cannot live life the way that God is intending us to live it. And so Peter says, be sober and keep watch because worry will intoxicate you. It will disorient you. It will keep you from giving time and attention to the things that God wants you to give time and attention to. Well, what do we worry about? I thought of three things that we worry about. First off, we worry about ourselves, don't we? We worry about me. Now, um, any of you that have little uh, children in the house, you kind of know how this works. When I grew up, uh, I'm 35 years old now, so when I grew up, spankings were still on the punishment menu. Like, my parents would spank me. I know nowadays spankings aren't as popular and people don't like them as much, but I got spanks growing up, and uh, I think it was probably good for me. But if, if you spank your children, you know there's two different types of kids. There's the kid that gets in trouble, gets their spanking, and then cries. Then there's another type of kid, and this was me. Gets in trouble, cries, 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 gets their spanking, and cries some more. It's like a spanking sandwich between two sets of cries. And my parents would always say to me, David, you cry more before the spanking than after the spanking. Why? Because I was worried about me, like specifically one part of me. You know, I was very, very worried about how this was gonna, how this was going to play out for me. And so we worry about ourselves. And it doesn't go away as we get older. We still, we still worry. And, and here's the thing about worry. It's self-centered. We worry about, you know, uh, am I good enough? That's probably the biggest thing people worry about. Am I good enough? Do I matter? And here's the thing. There's irreligious ways of dealing with this, and there's religious ways of dealing with this. So the irreligious ways of dealing with am I good enough is do I have enough money? Am I successful enough? Have I experienced enough pleasure? This, that, and the other. But then the irreligious ways of saying am I good enough is do the people in church think I'm a good enough Christian? Do they notice me when I raise my hands during the singing? Do they see how tirelessly I give to the church? Is anybody thanking me for what I did? How come nobody notices me? And so there's ways outside of the church, but there's also a lot of ways inside of a church where we worry about ourselves. And so one of the things that we worry about is me. But another thing that we worry about is the things and the people that we love. And that's fair, right? I mean... I have two daughters, and so I worry more than I ever have because I have two little girls. And when they're teenagers, I'm sure I'm going to worry infinitely more. Now, my my five-year-old just started soccer. Well, they call it soccer, but really it just looks like a bunch of bees running around the field together. Uh, We took her to her first soccer game, and I'm a a soccer fan, which is unusual for an American, but I I like soccer a lot. And uh, I'll watch soccer, and my daughters will watch with me, and they'll see how excited I get. And they're funny because they think everything is soccer now. So we were watching football yesterday, and my little two-year-old's like, soccer ball, soccer ball? And they come in, and they just scream at the TV because that's what they see me doing. They're like, go, go, go. And so I take my little girl out to the soccer field for her first game, and she's dressed up in her whole soccer gear with her little cleats and her little shin guards looking so cute. And we step on the field, and she looks up at me, and she goes, Daddy, I don't think I'm ready. And I look down at her, and her lip is quivering, and her eyes are starting to well up with tears. And shes I realize she's worried. She's anxious. And guess in just a split second, guess what happened? Her worry jumped off of her and onto me. And now I'm worried. Am I a bad parent? 
Should I, should I not have woke her up at six this morning to run wind sprints? Like, did I, did I make a mis, I didn't do that. Did, did I, have I made a mistake in making it seem like soccer is a big deal? Now Lilia thinks that she's not ready and because she's not ready, she's going to somehow disappoint me. And you see how worry does that? It's like a flea. It'll just jump from person to person. And we worry about the people and the things that we love. But if you're a Christian this morning, what you really need to be on guard against is this. Is the things that are the things that you're worrying about actually just exposing your heart idols? The things that you care about, the things that you love the most. Now, I care about and my daughters, I love my, my family, all of those things. But when my worry and anxiety about them or about the things in my life is so great that I can't worship God, I can't honor God, I can't receive life with any joy, then what has just happened is I've realized I have an idol. In my life. And here's what an idol is it's not a piece of wood or a piece of stone, is it? An idol is anything that we elevate above God, even good things. Making a good thing a God thing means we made it an idol. How do you know if you have an idol? An idol sounds like this If I only had that, then I would know I'm worth something. If I'd only get that raise, a job at, at my job. If only she noticed me. If only he would text me back. If only. And so we have these sort of things where we elevate them and we worry about them and we worry about them. And if we will let the Spirit reveal to our hearts, He will expose within us that there are things that we are looking to for salvation that only Jesus provides. And so worry is a pretty big deal because it can help us identify our idols. But I think there's one more thing that we worry about, not just ourselves. Not just the people and the things that we love, but I think we also worry about our enemies. And here's what I mean. We want to make sure people are going to get theirs. If somebody's hurt us, we want to make sure somebody's going to hold them accountable. And if you don't think it's true, think about your driving, right? Or driving down a road and uh, driving down 104 and somebody comes flying up beside you and cuts you off and almost drives you off the road and takes off speeding. What do you think? You know, I turn to my wife whenever that happens, and I say the same thing every time. Where are the cops when you need them? Somebody get that person. And then I go into this deep intercessory prayer moment that God would just send a police officer into that person's path. And just one day, I want to, I want to drive by that person after they've been pulled over. You ever have that dream, that feeling? And, and as they're pulled over and they're getting theirs, they're getting theirs. As I drive by, I'm going to slow down very slow, sort of out of respect to the police officer, but really because I want to get a good look at them. And I'm just going to drive by and just, wave at him like, hey, how's it going? Remember me? You almost drove me off the road back there. See, we want people to get theirs. And so we worry about it. And that is a worry that consumes people's lives. Will the people who hurt me get theirs? Will the people who disappointed me really know what they've done to me? And so we deal with these things of worry. Now, in this text that we're looking at, Peter seems to make this unusual leap from the topic of worry to the topic of the devil. C.S. Lewis is, of course, a famous Christian author. He said that Christians make two equal but opposite mistakes about the devil. One he called superstition, and the other one he called substition. Now, superstition is the devil's doing is behind everything. You know, you're trying to find a parking lot on Black Friday, and somebody pulls in the parking lot in front of you, and you're like, that's the devil. The devil did that. You stub your toe and you're like, the devil did that. I remember this old cartoon, this one strip cartoon uh, thing that I saw where the devil's sitting on the front porch of a church with his head in his hands looking really sad. And somebody walks by and says, "Uh, what's wrong with you? And the devil points over his shoulder and says, they blame me for everything. (laughs) 
Sometimes we're like that, right? It's the devil, it's the devil, it's the devil. But then there's also substition, which is like, come on, haven't we evolved as a society beyond the devil? Do we really still believe in the devil? And C.S. Lewis says neither one is is right. Uh, And this passage really helps us with this because in the context where it says your enemy, the devil, that Greek word enemy means the one who is against you or the one who accuses you. And here's what the text shows us. What does the devil use against us? What does he accuse us with? And when we look at this text in a whole, we realize he uses our worry against us. He comes against us and accuses. He finds our deepest worries, our deepest fears, and he roars them at us like a lion. He, he takes what we offer, our sin, and he'll use that against us. And so the point is, don't just point, there's the devil, and run away from the devil. Look inside and say, there's my worries, and run from my worries. It's not just the devil. So there's a face of worry, but there's also the heart of worry. And we look at the next few verses, or the first few verses, it says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. The heart of worry. If you look inside the chest of worry and see its heart, do you know what you find? Pride. The heart of worry is pride. Now, how, does, how do we get that from this verse? If you look at it, it says, um, to clothe yourselves with uh, sorry, I can't see it from there. It says to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 6, it looks like it gives another command, humble yourself. And in verse 7, another command, cast all your anxiety. But actually, the NIV, which is the translation that I'm reading from, doesn't quite get that, verse, that verb in verse 7 correct. The, the New American Standard gets it a little bit better. Because the word cast, you see that in verse 7? It's not in the imperative form in the Greek. It's a participle, which means the way that this verse really should be read to help us understand is, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, comma, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So here's what Peter is saying. One of the evidences that you are humbling yourself under God's mighty hand is that you are also casting all your cares upon him. Because he cares for you. So in other words, worry or holding on to our cares and not casting them on God is an example of pride. Worry is a form of pride because when we worry, we're filled with anxiety and we are convinced that we must solve all of our own problems in our lives, in our own strength. In other words, when we worry, the only God that we trust in is ourselves. We look to ourselves to control situations. C.S. Lewis defined humility this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that helpful? Because sometimes we think, well, humility is like having a bad self-esteem. No, because bad self-esteem is really just another form of self-focus, isn't it? It's just another form of self-absorption. It's really just a perverted sense of pride. Humility is not beating yourself up and thinking you're a nobody and, 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 and thinking you're a loser. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Well, in light of that, how hard is it to think of ourselves less? I mean, we're always thinking of ourselves. Every circumstance, we're thinking about how does it impact us? I think worry happens when we overestimate a few things and we have pride in a few things. And the first one is we overestimate our perspective. 
We think that we can see everything perfectly and we know how everything should go. But how finite is the perspective of a human being? I mean, how little do we really see? You know, how finite and how affected are we by our own biases, our experiences, our environments? Let me suggest this to you. The Bible is filled with stories where good things result from events that appear to be not good from the perspective of the characters who are living them out. Let me give you some examples. A nation is saved because a mouthy little brother named Joseph is hated by his brothers and sold into slavery. A ship filled with heathens ends up having an impromptu worship service because of their encounter with a disobedient prophet named Jonah. The great-grandmother of King David named Ruth meets her husband only after being widowed, experiencing famine, having to leave her home, and everything that she knows. These are bad circumstances that result in good things. And so we rely on our perspective and we think we know best, but what if you are anxiously and frantically trying to remove yourself, even today, from the very series of events that God intends to use to grow you and to rescue other people? What if we're anxiously and frantically trying to remove ourselves from the very circumstances that God has placed us in so that he can grow us and use us? See, worry is an overestimation of our perspective, but it's also an overestimation of our preferences. When I went to college, I actually went to school at Elam, which is in Lima. It's not far from here. Uh, it's this little one traffic light town in the middle of nowhere. And um, I got a job at a gas station, the only gas station in Lima. And uh, I remember my first day at work, I walked in there and I realized they had one radio and they had one station and it was country music. Now, I'm sure there's some country music fans in this place, but at the time, I was not a country music fan. And I thought, this is going to be a very difficult job for me to have. But you know what happens? You probably know the end of this story. Within three or four work shifts, I was singing all the songs. I, like, I was like, this is good stuff. And I knew it all. And back in that day, there was a song that was on the radio a lot by an artist named Garth Brooks. And it was a song uh, called um, Unanswered Prayers. It came out in 1991. And maybe you know this song. In this song, a man runs into his high school sweetheart at a football game at, in their hometown. As he introduces her to his now wife, he reminisces about the past relationship and how he had once prayed so fervently that this girl would be his significant one uh, forever. He realizes now that both of them have changed, and then he looks at his wife and says, I realize that God knew what he was doing all along. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Now, I, I don't usually ask this question because it can get awkward, but many of you who are married in this room, you're married to someone who was not the first romantic interest in your life. And so when you look back, how many of you are grateful for unanswered prayers? How many of you are glad that you don't always get your way? And if we overestimate our perspectives and our preferences, then we will worry about things that in hindsight, just give it five years, just give it 10 years, sometimes just give it 10 minutes, and you realize, I'm glad I didn't get my way. But another thing that we overestimate is our power. Luke said, or Jesus said in Luke 12 to his disciples, who of you, by worrying, can add even a single hour to your life? Can you just picture a little gleam in his eyes? He says that to his disciples, who of you, by worrying, can add even a single hour to your life. What does worrying do? What does it accomplish? It does nothing about tomorrow. It empties today of its strength. It doesn't do anything for us. And so this pride issue where we think we know best and we see best and we can do something about it, we need to bring this before God because that's the heart of pride. The heart of pride is worry, and pride is resisting the grace of God. So worry is evidence that we aren't really believing or receiving the gospel, and that's a big deal. 
Of course, all this talk about anxiety could actually just cause more anxiety. I mean, the worst thing you can tell an anxious person is stop being anxious. Don't do it. Lilia, my five-year-old, she's a crier. She's just, she cries all the time. And I found that what doesn't work is me saying, stop crying, Lilia. Stop it. I'm trying, I'm trying. And she's crying more and more. Stop crying. So it doesn't, it doesn't help. If I were to stop the message right now and say, see, worry is bad. Don't do it. I haven't really helped you at all. But thankfully, this text doesn't just show us the face of worry and the heart of worry, but it also shows us the death of worry. In verse 9, it says, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, resist the devil by standing firm in our faith. So here's the question. How do we stand firm? What does that look like? How do we stand firm in our faith? And this is what one of the commentators say, and I I agree. He said that the call to resistance does not summon believers to do Herculean acts on God's behalf. Uh, Believers are not encouraged to gather all their resources to do great works for God. No, resisting the devil means that believers remain firm in their faith. That is, in their trust in God. Believers triumph over the devil as they continue to trust God, believing that he truly cares for them and will sustain them unto the end. And so standing firm in our faith is not about us accomplishing amazing things and going out and doing incredible things. Standing firm in our faith is us continuing to trust in God and who he is and what he's done and who he says we are. And the letter of 1 Peter is filled with reminders of who we are. Let me read some of them to you. 1 Peter says that we have, long ago we were known and chosen by God the Father. Is that good for your heart this morning? Long ago he knew you and still he chose you. He says that we were given a new birth into a living hope. We're provided with an inheritance that can never perish. We are shielded by God's power. We have been called out of darkness and into light. God is building up individual believers into a spiritual house. He views you as a holy and royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people belonging to God. And if you look in verse 9 and 10 of our text this morning, you'll see that the focus remains on who God is and what he's done. What's the answer to worry? Focusing on God, who he is and what he's done. Look what it says in verse 9 and 10 about God's work. It says, he will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Aren't you glad that Peter didn't say, you go restore yourself. You go make yourself strong. You go make yourself steadfast. It says that God will restore you. He will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It also says in there that he has called you to salvation. He has provided a way for you and me to be saved through Jesus. See, the world can really only offer you two options when it comes to worry. Either just try harder to get past it or ignore it. Those are your only choices. But the Christian does not triumph through trying. The Christian triumphs through trusting. And there's a big difference. Other religions will tell you the same thing. Here's how you, here's how you triumph. Here's how you win. Try, try, try. Do, 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 do more, more, more. But the Christian faith says you triumph through trusting. Trusting in Jesus Christ and in what he has done. See, the beauty of the gospel is this, that we don't trust in our performance record, but we trust in Jesus' performance record. Not that we always get it right, but that he always got it right. The beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel can kill the worry inside of each of us because it shows us, listen to this, you are not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. You are not saved by the strength of your faith. 
you are saved by the object of your faith, who your faith is in. See, sometimes Christians think, what's about the strength of my faith? Am I good enough? Have I done enough? But you know what that leads to? Worry. But what if we're saved by the one that we've put our faith in, who is sure and will not fail us? As we come to a close this morning, I want to read something to you. This past summer, the New York Times published 70 editorial pieces on the topic of worry. And in one of them, this guy named Tim Kreider was writing about worry, and he was saying how, like, we don't want people to know who we are because we're afraid that if they really know us, they won't accept us. And so we, we try to protect our images. And then he said this. He said, years ago, a friend of mine had a dream about a strange invention, a staircase you could descend deep underground in which you heard recordings of all the things anyone had ever said about you, both good and bad. The catch was you had to pass through all the worst things people had said before you could get to the highest compliments at the very bottom. There is no way I could ever make it more than two and a half steps down such a staircase, but I understand it's terrible logic. If we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. I think he's right. And only in Jesus Christ do we have someone who knows us completely and still loves us completely. And if anybody in the New Testament knew this, I think it was the author of this passage, Peter. In the verse that we read where Peter talks about humility, Peter uses this imagery. He says, clothe yourself with humility. And the Greek word there conjures up an image of a servant wrapping themselves in servant clothes so that they can do servant-type work. And I have to wonder that as Peter wrote those words, if his mind didn't go back to the night on which Christ was betrayed, where Jesus wrapped himself in servant clothes and got down, and even though he knew everything about his disciples, he loved them to the end, and he washed their feet. I wonder if Peter thought back and thought, Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. He knew that I was going to deny him. He knew that... Thomas was going to doubt him. He knew that we were going to all abandon him. And still Jesus loved us. And what a hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't just wash their feet, did he, that night? He walked to the cross. He died for that denial. He paid the price for the betrayal. He endured the punishment for all the doubt, all the sin, all the rebellion. And he paid the price for our worry. And when we see what Jesus Christ did, here's what happens. We will worship instead of worry. And you can't do both at the same time. You'll worship or you'll worry. But worry has the power to ruin you. And worship has the power to restore you. You know, right now, my wife and I and my family, we're in the middle of moving. We're actually in the house. We have a pre-possession agreement. Well, we haven't closed yet. That's kind of a nerve-wracking place to be. Last weekend, I was speaking at a National Youth Workers Convention in Nashville. And I was in the middle of the big service. And a worship leader named Audrey Assad was on stage and I was all worried about my house and my home and what's going to happen and is this going to work out and will the banks clear us to close? And she began to sing this simple song and the line over and over was this, I will dwell in your house forever. I will dwell in your house forever. And it was like the Holy Spirit in that moment said, why are you so worried about your house? You're going to dwell in his house forever. When we see Jesus, who he is, what he's done, 
it gives us a perspective that we need. It gives us a, a, a look at eternity. It gives us the hope of heaven. And when you see Jesus, you'll worship because you realize, I'm far too accepted in the beloved to hold on to my worries. I'm far too right before God to let fear direct my life. I'm far too rich in Christ to let worry about money and stuff shape my heart. I'm far too loved to be anxious. We worship instead of worry. And I believe that casting your cares upon God is an act of worship. Last thought this morning. Look at Jesus in the garden. I bet if people had seen him, they would have said, look, he's worried. He's worrying. But he wasn't worrying. He was worshiping. And you know how, you know why we know that? Because he said, not my will be done, but yours. You know why else we know he wasn't worrying, but he was worshiping? Because he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. And because Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, 30 to 40 years later, Peter could write with confidence, cast all your cares upon God, because he cares for you. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, we ask for your spirit to work in our hearts. Seal this word and this truth. Reveal Jesus to us in such a way that our hearts respond with worship. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.